0: Good morning. Welcome to Houghton Wesleyan Church. As we begin this time of worship, please stand and join me in the call to worship printed on the screen. Let us sing of the Lord's great love forever. Let us declare that God's love stands forever. He in Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him.
1: To be able to worship together. And uh, it's a great day. It's cool. I like the cool weather. Some of you are shivering, perhaps, but that's okay. Uh, We're in the house of the Lord and He will warm our hearts. Before you take a seat, take a chance just to greet somebody. Welcome them if it's a new face. If it's not, give them a hug, perhaps. (laughs) There's a a number of different things uh, within the bulletin. Obviously, take time to go through it um, and to see for yourself some of the things. But one of those real important issues is next week, uh, we finish up with the the summer Sabbath time. Now, take note, yes, 9.40 and 11 o'clock, not 8 and then 11 o'clock or the different times. We're going at 9.40 next week. So the first service next week is at 9.40 contemporary and then 11 o'clock would be the uh, traditional service time as well. So keep that in mind. And then next Sunday evening, the youth are going to be sharing about Love Buffalo 6 o'clock here at the service as well. So keep those uh, important things uh, in your mind. And continue on in the registration or signing up for the, the picture directory. We'd love to have everybody get involved within that. There's different ways you can sign up, whether it's online or here in the foyer. Um, that's very important to us as a church as we try to uh, get a good face. It helps us see people and uh, put names and and faces together helps me a ton. Um, I see better than I think sometimes, perhaps, and it helps me to be able to put names and faces together. Um, You've probably noticed an announcement that's been going on through a while now about uh, the process of wheelchair ramp we were trying to put together, and we still want to do that. But notice the update on the back side there, and just take a note of that. Um, there's some extra help needed in the process of trying to help that come together. And if that's something you know about how that can come together and happen, please uh, contact and, and let us know in that process as well. Um, there are, uh, again, a number of prayer requests and things that are going on within our church. And we are very glad that you are here. And we pray that as we worship together today, you'll be drawn to Christ. And He, as He is lifted up, He will draw you unto Himself. We're going to read together. The prayer of confession at this time. Let us read together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we refuse to hear the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Fill our hearts with a desire to be your instruments for setting captives free. For healing the brokenhearted, and for loving the whole world. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
2: As we continue in worship, please stand. And we'll sing together God's praises. This time I'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our tithes and offerings and let's sing the doxology together. Be seated. The hurt that broke your heart left you trembling. the ground where joy will grow and nothing is wasted nothing is wasted in the hands of our Redeemer nothing is wasted it's from the deepest wounds that beauty finds a place To bloom, and you will see before the end that every broken piece is gathered in the heart of Jesus, and what's lost will be. wasted. Sometimes we are waiting in the sorrow we have tasted. The joy will replace it. Nothing is wasted.
1: this time uh, we have the privilege of spending time talking to and listening to God in prayer and um, we have the altar up here and if this is a place you'd love to gather just come up and kneel and spend time here we'd encourage you to do that. It's open and uh, if you want to just stay in your seats maybe you want to stand and just Raise your hands and and talk and listen to God. However is comfortable for you, please feel free to do that. And I'll lead us in prayer and I'll give us opportunity. I'll just be silent for a while in our prayer time that you may listen and or talk of needs that you have that are in your heart. But let's just spend these next few moments listening and talking to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know there are so many great things about you. And yet, all that we know of you is just but a small, a small bit of who you are. And the grace and the hope and the mercy and the love and compassion. All these things, Lord, that we experience every day. The good and perfect gifts, they come from you, our Father of lights, with whom there is no changing or shifting of shadow. You are consistent, Lord. And what a privilege it is just to, to come here and gather in worship of you, freely, to lift you up and to sing praises to you, to cry out to you, to remind you To be reminded of who you are in the great I am. Holy, holy God almighty. To know, God, that nothing is wasted. That your faithfulness is beyond our imagination. And even at times when we doubt and we wrestle and we wonder, you are there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And it's you, God, that we come to now. To bring our our praises, our adoration, perhaps our confessions, our concerns. So Lord, we spend the next few moments listening to you and talking to you corporately and quietly. Lord, within our, our congregation here and beyond, For those who are visiting and, and those, uh, Lord, who are extended family members here and there, there are so many needs. And so, God, we, we lay these before you. And we pray, God, that you would touch those who are just physically wrestling and perhaps because of their physical needs. Emotional and spiritual stress, Lord, has entered in. And we ask, God, that you would touch. You would, through your Holy Spirit, would flow through their body, mind, and soul. And may they experience you, God. And may they be drawn and encouraged and lifted up. And Lord, even when they can't, and the pain and the suffering is beyond their own ability, may you, intercede and step in and support them and reach out your hand like you did to Peter as he sank in the water, Lord, you lifted and you saved. God may you do likewise to those who have just these kinds of needs within our own community. We thank you for Wes and Cindy, Lord, and we pray that as they have one more week of rest, We pray that you will bless them, encourage them, and fill them anew for the ministry that you've called them to here. Protect them and keep them, and may they enjoy fellowship with one another, but likewise, Lord, with the time with you as they're about. We thank you for the many who serve this church in the different capacities. And Lord, within our community and beyond, there are just many other needs as well. And we are grateful that you are a great God and the great King above all gods. And you are aware of all these needs, whether here locally and around the county and the state and across the oceans to the far stretches, Lord. We know that you are fully aware of all these needs. And we are grateful that we can leave these before you. Even things that we don't know about, we commit to you. We think of the government. And Lord, there's just even recently in the last day or so, there's been a lot of concerns of uh, possible Attacks here or there, and and different embassies and consulates have been closed. And God, we thank you that we can trust you, and even in these difficult times as well. And so we pray for our government, Lord, as they strive to maintain safety and freedom for our people as well as for those around the world. That you would grant wisdom, and many will lean and turn to you for wisdom within our government, and others won't. And so, God, we we just pray that you would be God, and you would do whatever it is within your capacities, which are. There's no holding back there, God. Nothing is beyond you. And we just bring our desires to you in thought of that, Lord, that you would accomplish your great and mighty will through the nations. We look forward to the day of your return. And we know, God, that all things work together for your glory and honor, that especially for those who love you, Lord, that as they resign and And rest in you and in spite of the the things that go on around us and the chaos, there is peace. Perfect peace. A peace that is beyond comprehension and understanding. And God, it is because of you that we can experience that peace in a hurting world. So great are you. So faithful are you. So we thank you, God, for this time. And we pray uh, together now in closing the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.
0: Our scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 1 through 16, and verse 30. We pick up in the middle of Paul's voyage to Rome. After we had reached safety, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us unusual kindness. Since it had begun to rain and was cold... They kindled the fire and welcomed all of us around it. Paul had gathered a bundle of brushwood and was putting it on the fire when a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must be a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were expecting him to swell up or drop dead, but after they had waited a long time and saw that nothing unusual had happened to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It so happened that the father of Publius lay sick in bed with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and cured him by praying and putting his hands on him. After this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They bestowed many honors on us, and when we were about to sail, they put on board all the provisions we needed. Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered at the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin brothers as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. Then we weighed anchor and came to Regium. After one day there, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. The believers from there, when they heard of us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him.
3: I'm very happy to be able to speak to you all this morning. Uh, I'm going into my ninth year of teaching at Houghton, and this is the first time that I've preached at the college church. If you don't like what I have to say, you may see me again in 2022. Um, (laughs) uh, Some of you don't know me very well. Let me give you a little background. I teach a fairly wide array of courses. Uh, at the college, ranging from Christian theology to world religions and new religious movements uh, to understanding postmodernism. And one of my abiding interests in the postmodernism course uh, is the way that people use stories, the way they construct stories in order to make sense of things, all the way from their lives to stories of communities to national stories, to the course of world events. And these stories tend to follow fairly predictable scripts, uh, depending on the values that you want to emphasize or the point that you're trying to make. Um, Christians do this no less than anyone else because we believe that our stories, our scripts, if you will, are enveloped by a much larger story of God's plan to redeem the world. Uh, so, for example, someone who is going through a terrible illness or through financial uh, ruin uh, will tell their story, will script things in such a way in which God's faithfulness uh, is emphasized. Or there may be some multimillionaire athlete who scored the winning touchdown and you know what he's going to say post-game. Um, you know, God really helped us pull that one off because uh, apparently Jesus plans to reconcile all things to himself, include following the NFL. Um, and we follow these scripts very carefully. You never hear that athlete say, well, yeah, God really let us, let us down in the third quarter. You know, I don't know what he was doing. In little communities especially, places like Houghton, um, people are very careful to follow a script uh, when we talk about things and, and the way that we treat each other. Uh, because, for example, if I blow up at someone for driving like an idiot on Highway 19, and you know you're out there, um, <laughs> I'm probably going to have to face you in the hallway up the hill, and then I'm in the no eye contact zone, right? Um, so in our day-to-day interactions, it's best to keep to a fairly conventional script. It's better than creating a crater in the community um, because that's when the gossip machine shifts into high gear. Did you hear what John Kaye said? To, and he's a theology professor. You know? yeah. um, <laughs> and when we talk about larger stories, uh, we tend to follow a script in such a way that ennobles the story. So when we talk about the story of America and westward expansion, we tend to wrap that in a sense of America's destiny for the world. Or when we talk about the course of Western progress, we script that in a way that we talk about the prosperity and the freedom that that sort of thing brings. Sometimes this way of doing things is okay, but the problem is when following the script on account of the way you think the story needs to go, prevents you from being real with people or just telling the truth about things. Um, If you're having a serious crisis of faith, if you're feeling God abandoned, is Houghton Church, is any church, the place where you can be really honest about that without having people either shun you or getting all preachy on you? I found through the years, small communities can be pretty lonely places as well. And in terms of larger stories, well, for instance, our Native American friends down the road have their own take on Western expansion. You know. And millions of people around the world, in sweatshops, in India, in Bangladesh, they have their own perspective on the real cost of Western progress, which many of us here in the West conveniently ignore because it's all about getting cheap goods at the Walmart. One of the interesting things about this latter part of Acts is the way the script disrupts our sense of the way we think a good Christian story should go. It's difficult to preach from this part of Acts because several subplots are all linked together. And it's a bit like jumping into an individual episode of NCIS or Walking Dead or whatever your favorite series is without knowing what the Without knowing what the ark is, it can be confusing. So basically, here's the ark. Here's the the backdrop to the passage that was read this morning. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, Paul's opponents in Jerusalem had been stirring trouble up for him. And he's arrested by the Roman tribune, and he's about to be flogged. And you remember, you might not survive a Roman flogging. Well, when they find out that he's a Roman citizen, alarm bells go off all over the place, And he's sent to Governor Felix to have his case heard. (laughs) Now here's the thing. Just like today, when any matter goes to court, oh boy, it takes on a life of its own. Felix is succeeded by Governor Festus. So you've got Felix, now you've got Festus, who decides to leave Paul in prison because, well, why wouldn't he? It's the easy and popular thing to do. When Paul finally gets his chance to plead his case before the new governor, he appeals to the emperor, but not before he gets his chance to make his case before King Agrippa, who knows Paul's innocent and who utters the infamous, the notorious words, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, once things are in the appellate system, the script has to be played out to its bitter end. Some of you know this. So Paul's put on a ship with other prisoners, and they begin to make their way to Rome. Now, when they get around Crete, which is sort of south of Greece, for those of you who are Mediterraneanly challenged, they begin to meet these powerful storms that basically push them all the way to Malta, which is south of Sicily, which is a crazy long way from Crete if you're in a sailing vessel. This episode in chapter 28 is particularly interesting to me. The Maltese are very hospitable, but very superstitious. So as Paul's gathering brush for the fire, you know, he's soaked, he's freezing, there's a viper there who's like, ah, hand sandwich, right, and he fastens onto that hand, right. I mean, can life get much better, right? I'm shipwrecked, I'm freezing, now I'm snake bit, okay, Uh, But, you know, the locals, now they're standing around, they're like, this guy here, you know, what's up with him? He must have done something really bad, but the gods aren't going to let him get away. But Paul's this fierce missionary honey badger who just shakes the snake off and nothing happens to him, right? He doesn't care. So now the locals are standing around thinking... This guy's some sort of divine rock star, right? Who's landed on our rock in the middle of the sea here. And the headman of the island, Publius, he's so generous, he's hospitable, offers this overwhelming hospitality, which is great, but his dad has dysentery. You know what the symptoms of that are fever and diarrhea. Apparently, even the Maltese shouldn't drink the water on Malta, okay? And, yeah, and no historians ever said, Yeah, that indoor plumbing in first century Malta, that was the best, right? Um <laughs> you gotta wonder what Paul's thinking at this point. First I get shipwrecked, now I'm snake bit, now I've gotta lay my hands on a guy who has dysentery. You know, hashtag having a blast in Malta, right? You know <laughs> <laughs> Well, thankfully God's kingdom is greater than the neuroses of any storyteller, okay? And that miraculous healing really opens up the floodgates because now Paul's got people lining up all over the island who need free health care. Maybe I shouldn't have put that in with this crowd, okay? And the locals are so overwhelmed uh, that they just really pull out all the stops, Uh, And they're so gracious, and they supply the needs of these visitors. Unusual and wonderful things happen sometimes when you're shipwrecked on Malta. Paul ends up spending three months on Malta, and knowing the Maltese, you know, probably playing bocce or something, before again they take off for Rome, where he lives for another two years under house arrest, Talking about Jesus over fettuccine and good red wine to his Italian neighbors and having this blowout with his Jewish opponents which we didn't read about before he gets his chance to make his appeal before the emperor. So is this a happy ending or what? But do you know how Paul's story eventually ends? Luke's being a bit artful here, which is okay. Um, According to Eusebius at any rate, Paul's set free eventually. But he ends up getting his head cut off. Now, most historians would probably dispute Eusebius' account that Paul made his appeal before Caesar. But most people would agree he's he's finally beheaded in Rome. You know, epic win. The court system works, right? Except for the beheading bit. That's the problem. (laughs) Being a little snarky here. Uh, But here's the thing. At so many points in the book of Acts, even before you get to the way Paul's story ends, the script just disrupts the way we think a good Christian story should go. Because as most Westerners who are saturated in entertainment, we're convinced that stories need to have a happy ending in a fairly predictable manner. I mean, think about it. You know, after you've been beaten up Or imprisoned, you and Robert Downey Jr. get to wreak vengeance and restore order and get the girl at the end. Or if you're a nerd, you know, you find a way to upload the virus into the alien mothership, save the planet, and get the girl at the end. We tend not to tell stories like Paul. Mired in a corrupt and inefficient court system, fail to convert King Agrippa, get shipwrecked on Malta... You know, eventually get to Rome and turn away from your own people. Paul's not a very good Jew for Jesus. Get set free and finally get your head cut off. Sounds like a European art house film to me. You know, It's a strange script. Uh, it's not the way many people in the modern West think a good Christian story should go. It's not the way we would have written it. Um, Paul doesn't even get the girl at the end. Lots of people think Paul had trouble with women. That's for another message. Uh, but, but many Christians, including some very popular writers, very popular TV preachers, and I follow lots of these people because I'm fascinated by theological train wrecks, uh, think that a life of faithfulness should be marked by this steady stream of successes and what they call the favor of God. You seal the deal. You advance your career. You raise perfect kids. You enjoy good health your whole life. You retire in Del Boca Vista. There's not a lot of room for shipwrecks in Malta and getting your head cut off. We all want the happy ending. (laughs) The thing is, the way this story runs in Acts is a kind of pattern that you see repeated over and over again in the biblical narrative. God says to Israel, hey, you're my chosen people. Great. How does slavery and subjugation and diaspora sound? Good, huh? God says to Jesus, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How does torture and rejection and death sound? Pretty good, huh? The individual stories in the Bible aren't particularly concerned with happy endings as we think about them which makes preaching from them in this culture really challenging. Generally speaking, you need to take a step back and get a wide angle for the larger story to see what God is up to. Otherwise, you end up taking these stories and turning them into sort of cheesy object lessons or sort of Joel Osteen uh, cheery sort of parables at the end, right? That kind of step back is really necessary in a story like this in Acts, especially if we want to ask how this script might bisect, might intersect the story of our lives. So if we take that big step backward to get the wide angle, what are some basic confessions we can make? Here's the first big confession I think we can make from this story. God isn't caught off guard. God, God's plans are not thwarted by any shipwreck that we might experience. And at this point, people like to say things like, God is in control. No matter what happens, God is in control. I'm careful anymore to use that kind of language because sometimes people hear that to mean, oh, God planned my child's illness. God planned this tragedy. God planned this disaster. And somehow he needs all of this stuff for some great cosmic plan that he's putting together. When the truth is frequently, you know what, I think we're the ones who like to be in absolute control. We're the ones that like to micromanage everything and we project that control obsession onto God. There's a popular form of theology that celebrates that sort of view, and I think God comes off looking pretty badly. You know, somehow God really needs things like leukemia and oil spills and more Will Ferrell movies, right? Okay. <laughs> Armenian theologians have always said there's a whole lot of stuff within God's permissive will that happens before the kingdom arrives in its fullness. And whatever trouble that position might get you into, it's a lot better than attributing evil to God or saying God ordains certain things, therefore they, they can't be evil. Any theology that can't distinguish between the work of God and the work of the devil is pretty bad theology, if you ask me. More practically, though, sometimes this control obsession that we have Keeps us from being really honest with ourselves and others when we're working through a situation. I mean, maybe you're rushing to the ER, or you're standing to the gravesite, you know, or you're just thinking about the countless millions that have died due to war or pestilence and famine, and you're thinking, good thing God is in control because really bad things might happen if He wasn't. The life of faith is hard, folks. Sometimes it really does seem like things are spinning out of control. But it's difficult to confess that to other believers sometimes because they think something's wrong with you. I think one of the most well-known biblical texts that gives people trouble when thinking about this is the scene in which Jesus is hanging from the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I don't think he's play acting at that point. I think we have to trust the biblical text at that point and not try to slip behind the the text and speculate on what's going on in Jesus' mind. I think going through that radical crisis of feeling God abandoned is one of the reasons why the risen Christ is able to help us in every trial we face. And if he could voice this and scream it out to God, so can you. A mark of Christian maturity is being able to be brutally honest about your situation and where you are in the midst of it, while painfully learning to confess God's faithfulness in the big picture. And that takes time. That's a painful process. Otherwise, it's simply pious cliches that we recite to ourselves and to others. And if I can add this also, Another mark of Christian maturity is being able to gently help those who are shipwrecked in Malta come back to the point where they can begin to confess again. And it's a real gift to be able to do that sometimes without words. Because saying something trite about God to people who are shipwrecked and ragged on Malta is one of the most damaging things that you can do to them. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's all great for God. His plans aren't thrown off course, but what about me? I mean, he has these crazy, mad, divine skills, but what about me? How does that help me? Well, I said, I have three confessions to make. Okay. Here's the second big one I'd like to make. When you've been shipwrecked on Malta, God will provide both help and opportunities to minister in Jesus' name in ways that you can't imagine. You will find a Publius. You will find those generous Maltese. You will find those opportunities to minister that emerge from your shipwreck. And in God's economy, you know what, folks? Maybe it's those moments of loving and healing and playing bocce with the locals in Malta that count for far more than what we think we can accomplish in Rome. It's amazing to me how we've all learned to mouth that living out the gospel is all about relationships. We've all gotten relationshipy. And yet we act like our big strategies in Rome or Wesleyan headquarters or on Capitol Hill are what really matters. But what do we do? How do we behave? How do we comport ourselves when we're shipwrecked in Malta? That's a very important question. Because none of us knows what the immediate future holds. Not as individuals, not as a community, not as a nation, not as a species on this planet. The economy tanked a few years ago. You all know it could tank again. Someone sent me a, an article recently from the satirical Easing the Onion. And the report was that the financial sector thinks that, yeah, it's about time to ruin the global economy again. You know, might not be satire. You know what I'm saying? The college could close. Good Christians lose their homes and their retirement. Christians aren't exempted from these things or a thousand other things. But in the aftermath, are we willing to look around and say, where's Publius' father? How can the work of the gospel continue? How can we be a part of that now and here? Because as you know, our plans, our institutions, our scripts are all subject to wide change, dramatic change. And for that matter, we have to be able to receive help and encouragement from very unlikely quarters, maybe even from all the wrong people. I mean, for all we know, Publius was the head man of the island because he was head man of the local crime syndicate. Stranger things have happened on Malta, right? Uh, Christians sometimes think that, well, it can only be God's provision or or God's word of encouragement if somehow the name Jesus is embossed on it like a Nike logo. Nike logo sweatshop, that's a bad analogy, but you see what I'm saying, okay? I think God's economy includes far more people than those who are just like us, and we have to be open and discerning. And finally, I'd like to confess this from this passage. Our lives, I believe, are really subplots within a much greater script that God is writing. And we haven't got to the final scene yet. It's very tempting to read a story like this and then think about our own personal stories and turn the whole thing into a kind of parable about overcoming adversity. But at the macro level, what's going on in this passage is simply the fulfillment of what the risen Christ said at the very beginning of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I think that the more we come to be involved in this story, the more we can be willing to just let go of so many things that don't matter. You know, given the direction that the world is heading, the global challenges that we're facing... We're seeing a massive increase in eschatology, in apocalyptic literature. How is it all going to end? I mean, think about the past few years. We had the Mayan doomsday calendar craze, the Herald-Camping fiasco. Uh, then we saw this whole spate of end-of-the-world movies. Now it's marketing to doomsday preppers. All of this stuff is predicated on the notion that it's all going to end very badly. And that's an understandable intuition. But I think that this provides the church an extraordinary opportunity to be able to say to people, you can commit your lives, you really can, to something greater than yourselves. The little scripts that we write for ourselves can actually mean something when they're woven into a much grander epic. The end of which we can hardly imagine. The shipwrecks we experience in the cause of Christ. The beheadings that still occur in various ways around the world. All of these things are really worth it. And there's a certain level of peace and solace and confidence in knowing that. Of course, I think any religious message in the West that says to people, hey, want to follow Jesus? How does shipwrecks and maybe beheadings sound? I don't know that's going to meet with a very positive response. But God promises the story will not end there. So is this a happy ending or what? Thank you all so much for your kind attention this morning. God bless you.
2: Please stand and join us as we sing together.
3: Now may the God who promises that the end of all things will be far greater than anything we can ever imagine equip you for service. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be yours now and forever. Amen.